You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 23 this morning. I'm, um, if I've calculated correctly, we've got about six sermons or so left in our study of Romans and uh, the subject uh, in the current section that we're talking about is unity in the church, how Christians should treat other Christians. That's Paul's focus. He's devoted some 35 verses to this subject, beginning in chapter 14 all the way through the middle of chapter 15. And so apparently in the, the big scheme of the letter, 35 verses is quite a few verses Uh, So it's very important in Paul's mind, and it must be important for us uh, today. Uh, Chapter 14, we'll begin reading in verse 13. Verses 1 through 12, Paul spoke of the attitude that we're to have towards one another, that of welcoming or accepting one another. And here in verse 13, Paul begins to speak of some specific actions that we need to take. And so as we're reading it, keep an eye out for some of those uh, actions. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let's pray together. Lord, as always, we come to a text, we, your word, we, we know that these things are spiritually discerned, and so... We're thankful for the spirit you've given us. For those of us who've trusted you as our Lord and Savior, your spirit lives in us and that you illumine the minds and hearts to help us to understand. And we pray for that today. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would use me as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, up to this point uh, in Romans, or up to, let's say, Romans chapter 12, uh, Paul has been concerned with the matter of salvation. He's been talking about 
justification by faith alone, salvation by faith alone, that how we are all sinners, Romans 3.23 says, and our only hope to be made right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ, that the one who, whose death on the cross paid for our sins, whose perfect righteousness is counted to us, Paul explained, upon our faith in him. That's the only way that we're saved. That is a, a glorious gospel, amen? And it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Well, then in chapters 12 through 15, Paul begins to lay out some of the practical applications of that gospel. That is, how does this gospel message affect our life, our, the way that we live, our relationships with one another? And in particular, one of the things that Paul has been talking about that flows from our great salvation is that upon our salvation, we were put in the body of Christ. We became a part of the fellowship of other believers. This unity that we have in Christ, that we are brothers and sisters now in Christ, is something Paul told us in Ephesians 6 that we're to be eager to maintain, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It is something that we maintain. We don't create the unity. God creates the unity when he puts us together in the body of Christ. But it is something that we're to strive to maintain, Paul said. Uh, because as you know, and I know, sin has a way of messing up relationships and fellowship in the church, doesn't it? When we, for example, chapter 12, verse 1, fail to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. Or chapter 12, verse 3, when we begin to think too highly of ourselves uh, than what we ought. Or chapter 12, verses 9 through 16, when we fail to abhor what is evil and love with brotherly affection, as Paul taught, giving ourselves to gossip or foolish controversies or divisive behaviors. Sin destroys the unity and fellowship of the congregation. We should always be on our guard for that, on guard of our own hearts and lives in this, but also that from others that would cause such dissension. Paul says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But there's another potential source of conflict that Paul is addressing here in these chapters. And it's not so much of, of sin per se, but it's a conflict that is brought about by opinions, he says. By non-essential matters. He's been talking there in chapter 14 about the weak in faith and the strong in terms of Christians. That's been his subject. You can see it there in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. This is what he's been talking about. Paul is addressing the, the non-essential things, uh, opinions as he calls them, the quarreling over opinions that sometimes takes place in, in the church. And the examples that he gives us here, verses 2 through 4, uh, involve one's diet. And verses 5 through 9 uh, involves the observance of special days. Now that sounds confusing to us, but the dynamic here, I think, is the weak in faith are probably those Jewish believers uh, in the church in Rome who are fully convinced in their own minds, but not about their freedom in Christ, uh, but about non-essentials, about uh, diets and days. Speaking of Old Testament Judaism, 
the instructions that they had been led. There, there were some that were still struggling with eating food and drinking drinks that they uh, thought were to be unclean. They're struggling to let go of holy days and festivals and things that they've been brought up in in their Judaism uh, that, that they were taught that was right. They're struggling to let go of those things, even though in Christ all foods have been declared clean. And those ceremonies and festivals are no longer binding because the very person that those things pointed to, Jesus Christ, he has now come. He is their Savior and their Lord. But they're still struggling with letting some of those things go. And, and they're troubled with other believers, most likely the Gentile believers in the church, who don't seem to be convicted at all about these things. And Paul calls them the strong in chapter 15, verse 1. They're strong because they understand their freedom in Christ, that they have freedom now to enjoy all foods, uh, freedom to enjoy all days, freedom to enjoy all things for the glory of God. Paul affirms that this, and he sides with the strong, in fact, in verse 14. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. What Paul is saying is that he agrees that food in and of itself is not sinful, nor other things like recreation or entertainment and a host of other things that are not morally wrong according to the Scripture. But his concern here is not those things. His concern here is the unity of the church, the fellowship, of believers. And, and so his concern is the tendency that the strong Christian might look down on the weaker Christian and that the weaker Christian might, uh, or the weaker person here he's talking about, might despise the strong and pass judgment and, and so forth, and there might be conflict. And so Paul is wanting to address that. And he's already said in verses 1 through 12 that when it comes to one another in our relationships that we need to be, have attitudes of welcoming or accepting one another, receiving one another with understanding and grace. But here in chapter, or verses 13 and following, Paul is calling us to action. Now he gives us several applications here uh, that I hope will be helpful uh, this morning. First of all, notice verse 13. He commands us to decide never to put a stumbling block in the way of a brother. Never put a stumbling block there. He says, verse 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, his words there are very deliberate to not put a stumbling block or hindrance. Stumbling block refers to something that you might have accidentally left out in the floor, and someone comes along and trips over that thing. They stumble over it. The word hindrance is something that's different. It's, it's something deliberately laid out to ensnare or trip somebody. And so Paul says neither one of those two things are good. Whether you carelessly did it or you intentionally did it, we should never put out a stumbling block that would cause one of our brothers or sisters in Christ. He says we must be willing to limit our Christian freedom, our liberty for the sake of the weaker brother. That's his message here, his primary message, that we would set aside 
the prerogatives of our Christian liberties at, at times for the sake of not offending a weaker brother. Now, it's difficult to understand, but, but, but I think maybe if we turn, we haven't looked at this passage yet, but if you'll turn over a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians is the next letter, and it's only a few pages, but I think maybe this would be helpful for us as we think about what Paul is talking about here. Corinth was a polytheistic city. In other words, they had many so-called gods and many temples to these gods. And so there were sacrifices being made all of the time to these gods. Basically, priests and priestesses of these temples, they would offer sacrifices to these gods, and they would give uh, a portion of that animal as a burnt offering, and they would keep the choicest parts of that animal. Some would go to the priest, and some would go to be sold in the marketplace. So apparently there was a type of meat shop that was connected to one of the temples called the Shambles. The Shambles. And you might say it was the outback steakhouse of the day. If you wanted a good steak, you'd go to the Shambles, if you will. It was the best food in town. You could, you could perhaps get it in our imagination. You could dine in. You could dine out if you want take it home. And, and oftentimes there would be gatherings at these temples because they were the only spaces large enough to host a gathering, a sizable gathering of people. So at times there would be gatherings of friends or, or wedding parties perhaps or business dinners. And, and guess what? They were all catered by the shambles, the best steak in town, you see. This was a troubling issue for some of the Christians in Corinth. Because it created a question for them. Could a Christian buy this meat for his family that had been previously part of idol worship? Could a Christian eat at the shambles? What, what does a Christian do when their pagan friends invite them to a dinner at the temple with food that has been sacrificed to an idol? Was it okay to eat it? Now look at Paul's instructions here for us. They kind of parallel what we've been talking about in Romans chapter 14. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 4. Paul says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, here's the first thing he says, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. It's interesting, he starts there because Paul says, you know, in the big scheme of things, we know as Christians that there is really only one God in the universe. Amen? That's the Almighty we've been singing about. There's no other gods. Technically, there's no other gods or any other idols out there. But notice what he says, verse 7. However, he says, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food, he says, will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do eat. Now, that's not a good model to put on, on your own philosophy of eating. That could lead to bad places. But you understand what he's saying here. He's saying spiritually, what you take into your, your body is not going to have a spiritual effect, per se, on your life. Jesus said it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but you remember? 
what comes out of his heart that makes him unclean. Jesus declared all foods clean, Mark tells us in Mark 7, 19. So we are no more holy or less holy by what we eat. We are made holy by Christ alone who lives in us. But notice what he says, verse 9. That being said, that's the truth. He says, but take care that this right of yours, in other words, this right of yours to eat steak at the shambles, take care that it does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. There were likely here, these folks in Corinth, I say were either likely new believers, uh, perhaps those who had just come out of idolatry. They'd just come out of idolatry and into salvation, into the light of Jesus Christ. These are Christians who, who haven't matured yet, and so here they are. Just a few weeks ago, they were down uh, purchasing the, this, this meat as a part of their worship of these idols. They, they were very much engaged in this, and now they've forsaken it all to follow Christ. And for them to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols, it was like a return to that old way of life. Now, back to Romans. In our text, the weaker brother, I think is different. It's a different context. The weaker brother in Romans 14 and 15 are the Jewish believers. And, and in this case, they could have been very new converts. We don't know. But basically what Paul is saying here in light of all of this is, is, is before you invite your Jewish brother or sister over to dinner and offer them one of your famous uh, smoked pork sandwiches because you can do that he says you ought to give thought to this you ought to give thought to what you might do you need to be careful that you're not unnecessarily putting a stumbling block before your brother that's what Paul's been saying here. Back in our text, verse 14, he says, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean, unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Notice he's saying there, there's nothing inherently wrong with bacon. Praise the Lord. But for your Jewish brother in Christ who's not yet convinced of this, you as the stronger need to put your weaker brother first and not put a stumbling block in front of him. Verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, Paul says, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. The idea there is, is the, the sense, did Christ not love him enough to die for him, and shall you not love him enough to refrain from wounding his conscience on this issue, a non-essential issue? Literally, do not destroy him with your food for whom Christ died. I don't think he's speaking of some kind of eternal destruction there, but, but rather spiritual loss. 
spiritual setback, causing the person to, to go backwards perhaps in their walk with Christ or, or, or what Paul's talking about here, damaging their fellowship, the fellowship in the church that God has put together. This should give us a lot of pause. And, and, and it's very countercultural to how we tend to think today as believers in Christ because oftentimes we, we come to church and, and, and we're thinking that this is all just about you and me. This is all about my private time here of, of worship. This is about me and my needs and, and, and wants. But what Paul is reminding us is that what we do and not do impacts other believers. There's an interdependence here of believers that's quite radical, I, I think, and, 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 and our very individualistic and freedom-focused kind of culture, Paul is saying, you need to think about what you're saying, and you need to think about what you're doing, because it, it can have profound effects on people around you. And so we should determine, he said at the outset, to not put a stumbling block in front of our brother or sister in Christ. Secondly, he calls us to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. It's very interesting what he does next in verses 16 and 17. I think perhaps he is exhorting the weak here when he says, Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we can begin to lose focus as Christians and begin to think that what a person eats or drinks or wears, are, that those things are kingdom issues, that those things are essential kinds of issues. But Paul very wisely reminds us that the kingdom of God is not about these things. Where did he get such theology from? Well, you know he got that from the Lord Jesus, right? You remember the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 25, when Jesus said, do not be anxious about your life or what you will eat or drink, not about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? You remember in the context there, he's contrasting how the Pharisees lived their lives, always focused on external things, putting high value on, on things that are on the outside, on external. But Jesus said, seek first the, what? The kingdom of God, didn't he? And the kingdom of God, Paul says, is about righteousness and peace and joy. Those are the values of the kingdom. MacArthur notes here, this is a great summary of the Christian life. I think, I think it, it's definitely true that, that this is what this is about. It's about righteousness. Righteousness. This is about holy living. It's about living a God-honoring kind of life. It's about peace, peace with God that comes through our justification, a peace that leads to peace with one another. It's about joy, a personal joy of knowing God, of having experienced His forgiveness and His love and His mercy, and then sharing that joy together in a fellowship of the church. Paul here is kind of raising our sights, isn't he? He's effectively saying, you know what, 
Quit focusing on things that are unessential. Quit focusing on things that are external and focus on the things that are eternal. What a great word. Verse 18, he says, because whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. This kind of focused life is acceptable, he says, to God. And it's a witness to the world how we live together in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That is what is essential to our testimony, not what we're eating or drinking or wearing. Here's how R.C. Sproul explained that. He said, churches that elevate trivial matters as the true test of Christian living are destructive. To say people are Christians only if they do not go to the movies or dances is nonsense. Anybody can refrain from those things. But it is the fruit of the Spirit that Christ wants for us. Isn't that true? Love Patience, long-suffering, meekness, humility. This is Paul effectively saying here, he's telling the church at Rome to grow up. Move past these non-essential things. Life in the kingdom of God is not about these things. It's about loving the things of God like righteousness and peace and joy. It's about loving those for whom Christ died. This is the recipe for unity in the church. What a great word. Amen? Amen. Challenging, but good. Naturally, then, Paul goes on thirdly. He calls us to pursue what makes for peace and upbuilding, he says. Notice verse 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual Upbuilding. Let's make these things our pursuit. First, he says, peace. We're, again, to chase after and seek diligently the things that make for peace. And pursuing peace, to, I think to put, it, if, if, to put it plainly, is that I need to be humble in my interactions with others. I need to be willing to take a back seat in my liberty my Christian liberty over non-essential things for the sake of loving my brother and sister in Christ. A humility that says, I care more about you than I do about my, my opinion about this particular issue. He, he says we're to pursue peace. We're also to pursue mutual upbuilding. And I think that means something like that when we're speaking and acting as believers in Christ, we need to be asking ourselves, am I building others up by what I'm saying and doing? Or, oppositely, am I tearing down and destroying by my words and actions? It presents kind of a, a test, a, a discernment for us. This is what Paul says in verse 20, isn't it? I think he says, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. He comes back. Everything is indeed clean. Look, look, the foods are clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. I mean, literally, something like this. Surely, for the sake of a plate of meat, don't wreck God's work in your brother. That's what he's saying. Are, are you... 
Are you really prepared to do that, Christian? To prize your own eating and drinking above God's kingdom, above God's work and your brother? John Stott, the commentator, pastor several years ago, but he said there must have been some red faces among the strong as they listened to Paul's letter being read aloud in the church that first time. We're not to be known for being critical, for attacking each other and gossiping. Slander is the work of Satan, isn't it? He's the destructive one. He's the one that that brings false claims in order to tear God's people down. We're called, rather, in the name of Christ to build up, upbuilding, mutual upbuilding, he says, not to tear apart. Verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Literally, it's, it's a beautiful thing not to do this. You want a beautiful picture of a church? Look, look at it right here. It's a beautiful thing that when a church shows love to one another, this unselfish love that considers others before themselves. What a beautiful picture. By the way, notice Paul includes wine here in verse 21 as a non-essential thing or we might even say non-moral thing he says good not to eat meat or drink wine this is the first time he's brought that up I wish he didn't bring that up in other words here it seems that Paul believed in including that in this list that he did not see that as an essential matter or even a moral matter the fact that if he did if he thought it was a sin he wouldn't have used it as an illustration now we know from scripture that scripture speaks about this that drunkenness was and is still a sin right and the scripture is crystal clear on this And I think that's one reason their wine was often mixed with high amounts of water to avoid such drunkenness. But in this case, alcohol in and of itself was was not. So this is a great place for us to apply what Paul is saying here. Uh, There's obviously a lot that can be said, and I'm not going to take much time to speak to it, but this is a chance to apply the principle that Paul is teaching here to our own time Uh, to our own day and time that that we're bound to consider as we think about alcohol today whether drinking alcohol might cause others to stumble that's what he's asking us to do whereas drinking alcohol may not be a sin per se if drinking it causes your brother to stumble Paul says it is this is one reason that my, my own conviction is not to drink alcohol it's a other reason, another reason why those who serve as deacons in our church agree to abstain from alcohol. And I think Christians should give consideration to this, a lot of prayer and consideration. We have to ask ourselves questions. This is what he's saying. Is drinking alcohol going to be a building block that encourages others? Or, or rather, is there more danger that it's going to be a stumbling block, perhaps to those who've left behind 
such a life to follow Christ? What will the effect be on my children who see me doing this? What will the effect be on my neighbors and my coworkers if they see me partaking in this? What, how will it affect my testimony among lost people? Will it, will it affect them? Again, there's so much more that can be said, but this is one example for us to, to consider. It's exactly his point. The Christian is called to consider these things and to, and to limit his or her freedom in Christ for this very reason, for the sake of loving others and not causing them to stumble. These things are never easy to sort out. Someone came to me at the end of the service this morning and said that I have left him with many more questions than I did answers today. (laughs) I don't think that was a compliment, but (laughs) I'm to think about it. But that's precisely the nature of this, isn't it? It is challenging and difficult, and it's challenging to think about what's essential, what's non-essential, and labeling those things and looking to the Scriptures. And this is exactly what Paul is calling us to do. This is is never easy, but it is important, and it is the way of love. It is the way of unity and pursuing peace and upbuilding in the church. And so we must. Amen? Finally, Paul calls us to act with a clear conscience about these things. The final verses, verse 22, he says, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, I think in these final two verses, Paul has a word for those who are strong and those who are weak. And his first word is to the strong, and, and it's so instructive. It's interesting. He makes this distinction, I think, between belief and action, belief, uh, between uh, private conviction and public behavior. He makes that distinction. As regards to the private Sphere, he says, the faith that you have, verse 22, keep between yourself and God. And I think what he means by that, again, we have to be careful. We don't take that in places we don't, that the scripture doesn't, that Paul doesn't want us to go. But when it comes to these non-essential things, when it comes to uh, opinions, if you will, things that the scripture has not clearly spoken about, you've, we've all got opinions about those things, right? Paul's advice is to keep it to yourself. It's interesting, isn't it? Keep it between you and God. He says, he's saying to us, there's no reason to go around and parade your, your strong opinions, your views on non-essentials to everyone about everything. There's just no reason to do that. It's not helpful. It's not going to be helpful in the body of Christ to be doing that because it, it can sow division. Someone says, well, why haven't you given us more contemporary examples? Because I don't want to sow division and the congregation. He says, you're blessed if you understand your freedom in Christ and your conscience is not bothered by diets and days and such. Blessed is the one, he says, who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. That's in the private sphere. But as for your public behavior, Paul says you need to think about whether you're causing others to stumble. Charles Spurgeon, great preacher from several generations ago 
At the height of his ministry, he was walking down the street one day and he saw a sign in a business and the sign read this. He said, we sell the cigar that Charles Spurgeon smokes. And the story goes is after he saw that sign, he never smoked again. He never smoked again because he didn't want his freedom to cause other people to stumble. To, to the weak brother, Paul writes, verse 23, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever do, does not proceed from faith is, is sin. In other words, he's reminding us again, if something is violating your conscience to do so, you need to follow your conscience. Now, that doesn't mean that your conscience is infallible for everybody else. But for you, if this is a matter of conscience for you, to violate it is a sin. And so that's his instruction. Isn't there in this, though, an implicit call? I think there is anyway. An implicit call to look to the Scriptures to inform your conscience. I mean, again, remember, Paul is clear that the strong in faith are objectively right in their arguments. But he doesn't want the weak in faith to remain weak forever. He wants their consciences, all of our consciences, to be aligned with the Word of God. And church, can I tell you, that's exactly where our ultimate unity is found. It's not in these non-essentials that we all got opinions about. It is in our pursuit to know and to obey the Word of God, patiently, prayerfully pursuing a righteousness that is not defined by us, but a righteousness that is defined by God's Word. This is what brings us together. There's no doubt this morning we are a diverse people, and the diversity, I think, of, is one of the glories of, of the community of, of Christ called the church. But our unity is more glorious. And we need to do all that we can to maintain that unity. Be eager to maintain it. What great instructions Paul has given us to do so today. Let's heed them. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.